How many of you watched the World Wrestling Federation event called the, the debate last night? <laughs> it was the WW2, I think. I'm, I'm, I, man, put the gloves on and go after each other. I never saw six men trying to make and trying to please so many people in all my life. It was incredible. So much so that when I ran across this interesting little story, I couldn't help but tell it. It's, uh, it's about an example of what happened to a local politician after giving what he considered a stirring, fact-filled campaign speech. And the candidate looked out at the audience and confidently said, Now, are there any questions? Yes, came a voice from the back of the room. Who else is running? Did you feel like that last night? Who else is running? Tell you what, these are interesting days. I'm not sure that the Republicans are going to have much left after these primaries because they're each going to be so battered and bruised. And I'm not sure they're going to be able to make it uh, to the end of the year. But nonetheless, it is very, very difficult, I think, for politicians to please everyone. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And it's going to be very difficult for every politician to say everything exactly like you like it so that you'll be pleased with them, to vote on them, to push the lever, so to speak, on that election day. Pleasing people is a hard thing, isn't it? And a lot of people that are caught in some spiritual dysfunction and the result of that emotional, relational, and spiritual dysfunction, they're seeking to do everything they possibly can to earn, to gain the approval, to please others more than anything they could possibly do. And they go to incredible lengths to please others. It's difficult, I think, when we find ourselves in a situation, a circumstance, a relationship, or in a setting, maybe at the office or maybe at school, where all of a sudden we find ourselves in a, in a relationship or in a, an atmosphere where all of a sudden we are not pleasing those around us and we become recipients of that displeasure and so none of us like the way that that makes us feel and so we do great things and we go to great lengths and we do you know things that we may not do in order to please people because all of us want to be liked anybody in here not want to be liked you do everything you can to possibly just disrupt the people around you so that they'll be angry and aggravated and agitated and just hate your guts anybody in here do that other than me. Okay. And, and it's incredible to watch people going throughout their whole lives trying to please others. And the, pop, the problem with that is as soon as you please them in one area, they change. It's called marriage. <laughs> I mean, because people evolve. They do. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, you, you, you might think you're pleasing them, and all of a sudden something's changed, and their, their attitudes have changed, or their likes have changed, and so they change. You better be aware of that, guys, because your wives are subject to change. And so what pleased them 10 years ago may not please them today. Pleasing people. Well, some of us have just written that off, and so what we do is I'm going to please myself. I mean, that's the culture that we live in today. People just seeking to please themselves, and 
We live in this hedonistic culture that is self-gratifying and wants to feed the flesh and wants to feed those appetites that are carnal and fleshly. And as a result of that, I'm going to do whatever I have to do in order to please myself. I don't care if anyone else around me is, is unhappy or displeased with me. I am going to not worry about whether or not others are pleased with me. I'm going to please me. And as long as I'm pleased, I don't really care about anyone else. There are those who live like that. And there are times in your life where you live like that. The reason we make some of the decisions that we make and the reason we make some of the choices to sin is because we sin, make the choice to sin because that sin pleases us even though we know deep down in our heart it doesn't please God. For pleasing self has almost become a lifetime pastime for most in our culture today. And the, the, the large part of our society and our culture is interested in pleasing ourselves, even at the expense of displeasing others, and even at the expense of hurting others. It doesn't matter as long as I am pleased. And so we completely just write other people off as long as I'm happy and I'm pleased and everything else is going to be great. But the one we should be concerned about the most is pleasing God. Above myself and above others to please God. Because in pleasing God, there are times when I'm not going to please myself. And there are going to be times when I'm pleasing God, I'm not going to please others. For pleasing the one who really matters should be that which matters most in your life and in my life. And that one that matters most is God. God matters more than any other relationship in your life. And you need, according to this passage today, to seek not only a desire to please God, but a discipline to seek out whatever pleases God. And when you discover and when you discern what pleases God, you do everything you can to please Him because He is the one you don't want to displease. I promise you, you don't. Because even though you may have a love relationship with him, and even though you may be a part of the family through saving faith, and he's, you've been adopted in the family, and he is your father, he still will discipline you out of love if you don't please him. For if he doesn't discipline you, that's a sign that you're not really his. Because the Bible says he disciplines those who are his. Why would he discipline us? Because we as his children live in such a way as to not please him. That's one of the things that I found really interesting in families today. There's no more discipline anymore. Can I get amen to that? You ever been in a grocery store lately? I'm not talking about the ones in here, so don't worry about it. We just don't discipline anymore. I remember that old saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. And trust me, my dad did not spare the rod. And I'm, what was that again? You better watch out. You have no room to talk, young lady. <laughs> uh, pleasing the one who really matters. How do we do that? Let's take a look at the passage that we're going to be studying. We've been in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 for a long time, and we got today and then next Sunday, and we're going to close with Romans 12, 1, and we've been in this a long time, so take a deep sigh, a deep breath, and it's been an interesting study, and I've enjoyed it, and we're going to go on to uh, talk about, about what is a disciple and how do you make a disciple, and what is 
my Becoming Disciple look like, and we're going to have a, a Sunday night in a couple of weeks where we're going to sort of run a double track, so to speak, on Sunday nights in here. We're going to go for, I think, eight weeks of Sunday night together in the epicenter uh, with music and with some Bible study. So uh, put that on your calendar. I encourage you to be a part of that. But for today, pleasing the one who really matters. There are four things I want to talk about in pleasing the one who really matters. Number one, I have an abiding presence. In order to please the one who really matters, I need to understand that I have an abiding presence that dwells within my heart as a Christ follower that enables and empowers me in the presence of the Holy Spirit that enables me and empowers me to succeed when I seek to please God. I am not left to my own strength, to my own power, and we're going to come back to that in the third point, but just, just the abiding presence of God is something that I think we do not consider when we consider what pleases God, and how did I make that a reality in my life? Because, you know, when I first read this, I, I read, you know, there are times I don't feel as if I am pleasing God. Have you ever felt like that? To be, a, to be pleasing him, to, 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 to be approved by him. I mean, the passage that we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as not just living sacrifices, but to present yourselves acceptable to him. And that word acceptable also means pleasing. So how do I please God? Because there are times I don't feel as if I'm pleasing. There are times that I don't feel as if I'm acceptable unto him because I feel dirty or I feel sinful or I feel weak or I feel frail or I have fallen, I have gotten injured, I've hurt myself. And, and so therefore, because of some of the, the inconsistencies and the weaknesses and the tendencies that we have to our carnality and, and, and our primal nature, we have a tendency then to not feel acceptable before God. But the apostle reminds the church that he's writing to, he He said, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal. This is an appeal that is an urgent request. It's not one that we can sort of shove to the side. And he said, I appeal to you, brothers. You who are in Christ, you who are my brothers. He's sort of coming alongside of them and recognizing that they are part of the family of God. They are his brothers. These are people who are people of the faith. They have placed their faith in Christ. They have saving faith. And because of that faith, they belong to the Father and they are a part of the fellowship of the church and they're communing with the Apostle Paul. And so he's appealing to them as brothers. I appeal to you who are brothers. He's taken a lengthy opportunity from chapter 1, verse 1, through the end of chapter 11, to talk about how you become a brother, how you become a part of the family through faith, saving faith in Jesus. And now, as a result of that, you are in the family, you are of the faith, you are a part of the fellowship, and now I appeal to you based upon the fact that you are members of the body of Christ who possess the Spirit of Christ. When does that Spirit come into our lives at the moment of our conversion, at the point of our salvation. The whole sanctification, sanctifying salvation process that we go through is a part of the work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is is a huge component, the third person of the Trinity, in regard to our salvation. Or without the work of the Spirit, a person cannot be saved and will not be saved unless you possess the Spirit, you are not saved, according to the verse that we're going to be reading in a minute. So the presence of the Spirit of God is a large component, a large 
a part of that relational aspect that we have with God that enables us and, and helps us then through this abiding presence to fulfill what God is asking us to do. In other words, he's asking us to do something, and when he asks us to do this in Romans 12, 1, he is giving us this presence that, in, that is in spite of us and a part of us now through faith in Christ as brothers of the faith that will help us do that. What's the passage that he talks about before this passage that helps us understand that? Because if we sort of dissect it, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as acceptable to God, then he's, he's referencing then this acceptability is based upon the fact that we're part of the family. And he says, he's already said in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. He's talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about believers. For those who set their mind on the flesh is death. They're already dead. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were dead and we lived according to the flesh. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Once, when we were dead in Christ and we lived according to the flesh, we could not set our minds on the things of God because we did not possess the spirit that enabled us and empowered us to do that. We did not have the presence of, the, of, of God within us to make that happen through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now you look at verse 8, it said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then you go to the next verse, in verse 9. And whoever are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, you, however... That's incredible. Next slide. You, notice, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You once were dead. You lived according to the flesh. And no matter how hard you tried, you could not please God. But now you are in the spirit. And in fact, if you are in the spirit of God and he dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. Uh, some of the Pentecostals and the Charismatics would tell you that the, 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 the presence and the gift of the Spirit is a second blessing. That's not biblical here. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Because if you don't possess the Spirit of Christ, you are not saved. The sanctifying work of the, of the Spirit cannot become a fruit in your life. And so, but if Christ is in you, not if, but because Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, there's a lot I would like to say about this, and I took all week long to study Romans chapter 8 and change this whole study, as some of the staff know, uh, what was it, late Friday night. (laughs) And so I I had an exhaust, and I, I would love to camp out in Romans chapter 8 for about a year. Because it's one of the, the key chapters in all of the New Testament. But for time's sake, because you want to get out of here around uh, 4 o'clock, we're going to shorten it up a little bit. Okay? But the one point I want to make in this whole thing here is that unless you possess the Spirit of Christ, you are not of Christ. You are not a brother. You're not a sister. You're not a part of the family, and you don't possess faith, saving faith. Because the moment you place saving faith in Jesus, 
It is the Holy Spirit that gives you faith to do that. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates your heart and your life. It is the Holy Spirit that then cleanses your sin. And it is the Holy Spirit that comes to dwell permanently in your life, never to vacate your life, never to leave your life, never to leave you alone. And the presence of the Holy Spirit is there with you always as a child of God. Take a deep breath. Just go. Do you feel that in your, in your lungs? Did you know that the spirit, the word for spirit in the Greek is pneuma? which means breath. You want to you, you you take some time to just so you know, remind yourself that you're not alone from time to time. You feel weak and, and you feel incompetent and you, you're being tempted beyond your own means to resist temptation. Let, let me give you a secret. Here's, here's what sometimes I like to do. I do it on Sunday mornings before I get up to preach. Uh, some of you think I'm bowing my head and closing my eyes. This is what I do. I go... I get all the breath I can out, and then I go, and I do it again. I do it twice. What am I doing? I'm exercising with my lungs what I believe in my head and I have in my heart. A reminder of the pneuma, the breath of the Holy Spirit empowering me to do what I cannot independently and apart from God on my own do. Because if I stand up here on my own, this is useless. I don't have the talent. I don't have the mind. I mean, if you knew how stupid I really was, you wouldn't be sitting here today. The reality is we're all that way. But the presence of the Spirit of God is the one who enables and equips and empowers us. And we need to be reminded, the reason why we're having a hard time with the whole justification and sanctification thing that we've been studying now for several weeks from the beginning of the first of the year is because we're not being reminded of the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in our lives that is there to equip, enable, and empower, and encourage us to do what God has asked us to do. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit because he knows how weak, how frail, how human, how depraved we are, and he knew we couldn't do it on our own, and he gave us the presence of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. Yes, I am Bapticostal. Bapticostal, that is Pentecostal with theology, okay? And it is theological to believe in the third person of the Trinity. And we have Baptists have been robbed of the Holy Spirit for decades because we're afraid to become charismatic or Pentecostal or whackamatic or whatever that may mean. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is in you if you possess saving faith. To do what God is asking us to do. You are not alone. You're not alone. I know the, one of the childhood stories that I like to watch, and I've done it so with, is uh, Pinocchio. You know Pinocchio? Who's he got on his shoulder? Jiminy Cricket. What does Jiminy Cricket do? It's his conscience, isn't it? And as soon as Pinocchio tries to do something he's not supposed to, he whispers in his ear, don't do that. We have the Holy Spirit, who's our Jiminy Cricket, so to speak. Don't stretch it too far, you'll get crazy. But he whispers, he speaks, he directs, he leads, he reveals, he convicts. And it's the Spirit of God 
revealing the Word of God and the ways of God and the work of God that enables us and empowers us to do what God is asking us to do. The abiding presence of God dwells in you. Remind yourself of that as you're seeking to become all that Christ intends for you to do. You are not alone. He's not just sitting up there in the cosmos up here on a throne. He lives in you. The abiding presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in you, the abiding presence. Number two, I not only have an abiding presence, I have an applied practice that I must do. I must come alongside this enabler called the Holy Spirit, this equipper, this encourager called the Holy Spirit, and together we are working to make this possible, to to live my life in such a way that I am approved by God. You see, it's not all on God, and it's not all on me. It's on God and me. It is a joint collaborative effort in which we are together joining God in the work that he's doing in us and through us to make it happen. Therefore, he says, present your bodies. Therefore, having said all that I have said between Romans 1 through 11, Don't just read that for intellectual insight or for doctrinal truth or for some knowledge, but apply this knowledge into practical living. It should make a difference in how you walk and how you work and how you follow the ways of God. It is a part of the practice. The Christian life is a part of the practice. We sometimes think, and and many times the Christian life is, is taught, that all we have to do is say a quick prayer, and that's all there is. I've been saved, and my name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so therefore I am approved by God. Yes, you are. We talked about justification, didn't we? If you didn't get an opportunity to go through that with that, it's online, go through the study on justification. We've talked about that now through justification, we are We are declared righteous before God. And we, through faith in Christ, saving faith, he comes in and he cleanses us of our sin. And through that, we gain access to God. That which was separating us from God, our sin, our enmity, our strife was removed. And now we have the joy of coming into the presence of the Holy of Holies and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, acceptable. He accepts me. Now, because of a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness through Jesus, I stand in his righteousness. And Christ now is that filter in which he looks through Jesus and sees me acceptable to him. That is a position that is never lost. However, that doesn't mean there's nothing that I have to do after that. Because I'm an honorary kid. I can disobey God. You see, just because I become a part of the family through saving faith doesn't mean I, can, I, I live for God. I, I'm sinless. <laughs> that I'm never going to live carnal. That I'm never going to disobey. That I'm never going to have a time in my life. You know what, God? I don't want to please you. I don't want to please myself. That's why I'm doing this. That's what sin is. It's pleasing me. It's not pleasing God. And Christians can become carnal. We can can go back to the old life. That's why he said in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers. It's the same thing he says in uh, James says through the Spirit in James to those who he's writing to. It's not about what what you proclaim, it's about what you practice. You see, there's a part of the practice. There were a lot of people doing a lot of talking, but weren't doing a lot of walking. 
Sound familiar? I know Jesus. He's my Savior. Well, your life's full of trash. Your mouth is full of garbage. You, you don't look like Jesus at all. Your lifestyle isn't conducive of a disciple of Jesus, so much so that you probably know people that claim to know Christ and you question their claim. And probably if you look in the mirror, you could probably question your own because nobody knows you like you know you. In Romans 6.13, he says, Do not present your members as to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. A Christian can do that. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, after I'm saved, I continue to present myself. Heart, mind, body, life, I continue. My total, whole, complete, I continue to give him everything. It's a continuation. There's a progress that must take place. He said, we saw it last week, work out your own salvation. Salvation is a lifetime working it out. It's not a one-time event. It is a lifetime process in which I'm continually, constantly, ongoingly giving myself to the Lord. Next slide, it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally, Paul is writing, finally, in conclusion, he says, then brothers, we ask and urge you, Paul has an urgency here, in the Lord Jesus, that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We've already told you how to walk and how to please God, just as you are doing. You're doing it. However, that you do more and more. What does that sound like to you? You ain't got there yet. You've not yet arrived. I think some of us think, you know, I'm about as far as I need to go. Paul says, no, you're already doing some great things. You're you're seeking to please God and you're pleasing him, but there's more that you could do to please him. Don't stop. Continuous effort to seek to please the Lord. It, It goes beyond what you're presently and currently doing. Search your hearts, he says, and look and go beyond from where you are because there's more that you could do in order to please God. Ephesians 5, 8, 10 says, walk as children of the light. Now skip down to verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Why would he say that? Try to discern. Think about it. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. It's in the Bible. Look it up. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. How do you know what's beneficial and what's not? you got to think you got to discern. you got to examine. you got to judge. you got to test the waters to determine what's acceptable and what isn't. While it may be possible that you could do that, because there are a lot of things, you know, the Bible doesn't really address. So, you know, is it, is it permissible? Probably. If I do this, am I going to lose my salvation? No. But is it beneficial in pleasing God? Is it the best thing I could do to bring pleasure to him? Because I want to please God. You know, interesting, uh, I've been married now 38 years. How many of you are married? That's a long time, isn't it? Can you imagine any woman would live with me that long? I can't. 
And this is Valentine's Day. And uh, something's seriously wrong with her. The day she said yes, it flipped me out. And I know she hasn't been the same since. And I, you know, you know, after 38 years, she still fascinates me. I mean, I look at her and, you know, women do things, guys, they just, they just fascinate me. She's a girl. And girls do girly things, and they just, they, they're just different than guys. And every time I watch her, it just fascinates me. I just, you know, I feel like, a, like I'm in third grade, and I'm looking across the aisle at this little girl over here, and she, something attracts me to her, and I can't figure it out. But it's awesome. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have no clue. You're in trouble. It's Valentine's Day. So you should have said, amen, honey. That's how I feel about you. It's going to be a long day today for you. It's going to require a lot of chocolate and a big, big card. But I remember our wedding day. I remember standing at Lake Highlands Baptist Church. Came up to the aisle with in the church that Rayburn Floyd had been the pastor for 38 years and he had pastored my mother and my mom and my dad got married in the same church by the same pastor. And I stood in the same place my parents stood before I was born and, and, and I waited for the door to open. That woman before the door opened spent hours getting ready. I mean, she said just the other day, we were getting ready to go see some people for lunch yesterday. She said, it takes me longer to get ready than it does for you. And women take longer, don't they, guys? Don't they? And it's okay. They're not getting ready for themselves. They're getting ready for you. And the time and the effort they put in getting ready, they're getting ready for you. We're getting ready to meet our groom we're the bride, and it takes a lot. Some of you are gonna, gonna take, you're going to take longer than others because you need more work than others to get ready to see your groom, and the groom is Jesus. And as we're progressing in this life, we are getting ready to meet him, and it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. It's going to take progress. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take a practice in which we have a desire to please him. And because we have a desire to please him, we are doing everything that we possibly can to get ready for our wedding day. Because when I stand before him, I want those doors to open. And he goes, wow! Because his eyes are going to be on you. And only on you and no one else on our wedding day. An applied practice. Number three, not only do we have an abiding presence and applied practice, but we have an available power. Interesting, it says, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, present your bodies by the mercies of God. We've talked about the mercy that God is merciful on those who want to have mercy and and he's not upon those that he's not and all that kind of stuff. But the mercies of God. God is a merciful God. And his mercy comes to play in this request for us to make ourselves acceptable to him. That word mercy means he's compassionate. 
And because he's compassionate, he knows that he's asking us to do something that we can't do without him. I mean, it would be a mean God who would say, I want you to present yourself this way. Good luck, buddy. Hope you make it. He doesn't do that. He he challenges us to present ourselves in this way, and then he equips us to make it possible. That's the beauty of it. Why does he do that? Because he's a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. He's not asking us to do this on our own. Yes, he's asking us to join him. Yes, we have to put some effort into it. Yes, we have to make a choice. Yes, there has to be discipline. Yes, there's some practice in it. But guess what? He comes alongside us and empowers us to make it possible if we'll yield to the control of the Spirit. Why? Because he's merciful. God is like that. He gives you what is necessary to accomplish the task, to fulfill his purpose. He said, I want you to please me. Great. How do I do that? Well, here's how you do it. God, I can't please you. Your standard is way up here. How do I make that happen? I'm going to give you somebody. His name is the Holy Spirit. Really? Yeah. He's going to empower you to do that. Notice it says in Romans 6.22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Where does the fruit come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Genesis 5.22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit leads you to sanctification. The fruit of the Spirit comes from the Spirit, generating life in you to produce fruit that you could not otherwise produce without the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice it says in Philippians 2.13, for it is God who, wrote, who works in you. That's cool. We, we talked about this last week. I'm also repeat, repeating some of the verses, but I couldn't help it. For it is God who works in you, in, 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 in concert with you, in you. He works alongside you. He works with you. That word in means that he comes alongside. In concert with you, he works in you both to will and to work. God, I don't will it. Well, I'm going to help you will it. Because you know what? There's sometimes we just don't want to please God. You know what I'm talking about? Don't look pious at me. Turn to your neighbor and say, sometimes you don't want to please God. You don't have a desire to please God. You don't want to please yourself. Or you don't want to be unpleasant to somebody else, and so you'd rather please them than please God. And sometimes that, that temptation is hard because no one wants to be excluded or persecuted or denied or, or cut out of a relationship. So we'll, we'll go along in peer pressure. It's called students called peer pressure, but students aren't the only ones that have peer pressure. You know that, students? Moms and dads have peer pressure too. So when they talk about you, you turn it on them. Yeah. Because you got peer pressure too. Yeah. Your neighbor gets a new car, this is the kind of peer pressure you're under. So, well, they didn't like that, did they, kids? They didn't like that. And you got some talk over here, didn't you? Yeah. Whoa. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, we're going to skip down to 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. I like that. He's going to equip you. He's going to equip you with everything. Everything you need, he's going to give it to you. With everything good that you may do his will. 
God's going to give you everything you need if you'll tap into him, yield to him, give him control. He will give you every good thing that you need to do his will, working in, in concert with us, that which is pleasing to his sight. God says, this is what pleases me. I'm going to come, I'm going to equip you to please me. If you'll tap into the power source that I'm going to give you, Romans 8, 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. All right, Lane, come on up here. Come on back. Yeah. I didn't prep you, did I? I need two guys to come with me. Come on, two guys. You're going to jump up here again? Huh? All right, guys. Stand right here. Two more guys. No, no, I need you. Come on. That's cool. Wait a minute, guys. Step aside, man. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Come on. Can you do it? Both at the same time. We tried that the other week, right? Can't do it. No, you tried one, but you didn't get them both up. No? Okay, so kind of squat like this. All right, guys, come on either side of me. Can you pick him up? You better pick him up. No, no, from the knees down. Pick him up. Pick him all the way up off the ground. Come on. Come on. Come on. You can do it. Hold it. Hold it. Keep it there. What have you been eating? All right, that's it. Good deal. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's say he's God the Father and he's God the Spirit. I know it's a stretch, but let's pretend it's so. He could not pull himself up by his own bootstraps. But the father, in conjunction with the son, pulled him up off the ground and empowered him to do what God asked him to do. Thank you, guys. That's exactly what God's said to you. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need help. Turn to your neighbor and say, well, you need a lot of help. We all need, we all need a lot of help. You don't need any less help than anybody else. Because you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But God the Father, in concert with God the Son, by your yielding to his power and his control, will lift you up above your circumstance, your situation, your temptation, your sin, your weakness, your frailty, your lack, and will be your sufficiency. Lastly, I not only have an abiding presence and applied practice and available power, but lastly, I have an ambitious priority. Acceptable to God. Interesting. Acceptable to God. That's the priority. Romans chapter 15 verse 1 said, we are strong, we who are strong have an obligation to be with the failings of the weak 
Notice this, and not to please ourselves. I know the, the writing here and the, the context or, or the narrative is, is talking about dealing with your weaker brothers and sisters, but I want here to highlight this part that we are not to please ourselves. You are not the center of the universe. Say that again. You're not the center of the universe. Now, if you're one, like my youngest grandson, you are the center of the universe. But if you're 31 and you think you're the center of the universe, you need to wake up. You are not the center of the universe and not Everyone here is here to please you, nor are you here to please yourself. You are here to please God because as we talked about last week in becoming like Jesus, notice what Paul said in verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. And as we become like Jesus, we are not here to please ourselves. Christ didn't come to please himself. He came to please God and in dying a sacrificial death on the cross, thus justifying us from our sin against God, he pleased, he satisfied the demands of God so that we might be saved. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane in the end of the Gospel of Matthew and he's praying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted himself knowingly how painful the cross would be, did not seek to please himself, but sought to please God so that we then might become recipients of his work. Lastly, look at Galatians 1.10. For I am, or am I now? Paul is not asking them to do something that he isn't practicing. For now I'm seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If it were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me tell you something. Sometimes you can't follow God and please others. But sometimes you're not going to be able to follow God and please yourself. But in John chapter 8, as we close, you see this incredible passage here where Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees and and they're not happy with what he's claiming to be. And And uh, they're questioning his identity and questioning his claims. And Jesus says to them, when you have lifted up the Son of God, you're going to lift me up, meaning you're going to elevate me. I'm going to be exalted on the cross. That word lifted up, I'm going to be exalted. I'm going to glorify God on a crucifix called the cross where I'm going to die for the sins of the world. But they didn't get it because they didn't understand what he was saying. And when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority. He does absolutely nothing in His own authority. But notice what He says. But I speak just as the Father has taught me. Verse 29. And He, God, who sent me, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. What did Jesus say? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Can you say that? I can't say that. Do I have a desire to want to say that? Am I seeking to do that? Am I progressing toward that? I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Two questions and we'll close. In the next slide. Am I seeking to please myself or to please others? 
more than I am God. I guarantee you when you start seeking to please God more than yourself and more than others, you're going to have conflict in your life. You'll have persecutions in your life. You'll have trials in your life. You'll have temptations in your life. It's a struggle. It's a lifetime struggle. But who should we be concerned about? God. Am I seeking to please myself or to please others more than I am God? Last question. If I were to stand before God right now, how would he evaluate my acceptability? You're standing before God in this place of worship. He is here. What does he have to say in regard to your acceptability before him? Are you more concerned about pleasing yourself? Are you more concerned about pleasing others? Are you more concerned about pleasing God? And are you doing everything you possibly can to move toward a life that's completely like Christ and pleasing God in everything? Let's pray. Song inside my heart